It's a Cartoon Revolution. I'm Deidre. And I'm Sonia. Why Cartoon Revolution? Because the cartoons we love aren't just for kids anymore. Cartoons have something to say and change to inspire, and we're here to break it down for you. Whether it's anime or Pixar, 2D or CG. Join us as we take cartoons too seriously and discover their hidden meanings and revolutionary ideas. Hello, hello. Hi, hi. All right, so before we begin, I just wanted to mention that April is Autism Awareness Month. And this is an issue that's dear to me because for those of us on the spectrum who get easily overwhelmed and exhausted by the things that are going on around us and also within us, cartoons provide a kind of safe space for us to de-stress. And it also is like a filter so that we can still engage with big ideas without getting overwhelmed. And essentially, it's one of the reasons why Sonia and I feel this podcast project is important to us. So once again, happy Autism Awareness Month. Yay, thank you. Yay. (laughs) So I think what we can do this month to change it up, usually we get listener comments or listener questions. And this month, I wanted to show some replies that we got on Instagram for the polls. The first one was the Pokemon travel companion. As in, Yeah, it was the question I asked you that if, if you could bring one Pokemon, you're going to travel around, what Pokemon would that be? Anything but a legendary, basically. Mm-hmm. And we got Arcanine, Parasect, mm. Bulbasaur, which are all good choices. And Arcanine, we actually got more than once. I love Arcanine. Um, yeah, is that? Okay, so we also got a comment about it being like a basic Pokemon, but I've never, and even my sister said she liked Arcanine a lot too, but I've never mm-hmm. considered that a basic Pokemon. Do you I know think it's because one from? of the OG, you know, mm-hmm. um, generations. And it's also not like the most strong, I guess. And it's a dog. That's that's probably <laughs> why it's not like some dragon or you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's, it's a dog. I guess <laughs> it's so why cute. I- yeah, and yeah. Friendly. I think I think that's why I liked Vulpix and Eevee. Mm, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I definitely love Arcanine. Parasect is interesting. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say they like Parasect, but um, yeah, it's was so that cute. You? No, it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> you know me. That it's like a tongue. <laughs> that's true. But you're also a bug girl. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fair. Yeah. So our second question was about the new Scarlet and Violet starters right because that was just released so okay number one was quaxley number two is fuikoko and number three was sprigatino as in zero votes for that one <laughs> but that really? one's like a real animal i'm yeah. surprised fuikoko is so cute and ridiculous wow yeah that was my pick if i were to choose one quaxley was number Me one too. Fascinating. <laughs> okay as we approach the next topic wanted to ask you Sonia what is your favorite stop-motion movie Mm, that's tough probably either Corpse Bride or Coraline or okay I did like Kubo and the Two Strings too but I think I think Coraline would beat that one so I would say Coraline or Corpse Bride I like two out of three of what you just (laughs) (laughs) you didn't like Kubo no I didn't but I understand I I think that would be a good episode some other time. 
because yeah, I definitely. have thoughts. <laughs> I also, it's been a while since I've seen it. I remember enjoying it when I watched it, but I remember almost nothing about the film, which kind of suggests that it might not have had as great an impact. Whereas with Coraline, I remember it so well, like the back of my hand. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I see mm-hmm. another discussion coming up for that then. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess mine, Corpse Bride is one of them, but I also remembered is did you ever watch Wallace and Gromit yes there was the movie about the were rabbit Mm -hmm. which I actually really enjoyed and I I remember um to this day but Wallace and Gromit not everyone I feel like in the U.S. has watched it's claymation property right yeah it's claymation slightly different but very similar Mm -hmm. yeah no I think people aren't as I remember enjoying it as a kid, but I've never felt the desire to rewatch, probably because they're kind of ridiculous and the, also the animation style is a, is a bit weird. But now that you that say reason. that, I remind, yeah. it reminds me of Chicken Run, which I also loved as yes. a kid. <laughs> yes, yes. That might also be out there. This is so strange, so disturbing. <laughs> I love it. Well, that's what I love about cartoons and animated stuff is that you can really exaggerate certain features, but also simplify a lot of other ones. Yeah, and it's also remarkable how simplified and imaginative they are, but also how disturbing at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like the eternal point of this podcast, but like we always underestimate how complex and dark some of these shows are. And they're really saying something about things like eating people, genocide and all these dark things that we would not think that a cartoon or a stop motion film would address. I know. I think that's a good segue to one of the films that you just mentioned, which was Coraline, because that's Ooh. what we're going to be talking about today. Yay! Yay! I, I do love this film. And really quick summary, there's a girl who moves to this really drab house with some interesting characters, and then eventually she finds a door. She ends up in a crazy world where everyone has buttons for eyes. And it's not what it seems. And eventually she defeats the monster and then comes home and everything starts to look up. And just a bit about Laika too, because this was a Laika production, right? Laika is an American stop motion animation studio best known for the films Coraline, Paranorman, The Box Trolls, Kubo and the Two Strings, and Missing Link. Coraline was their first feature film. Anyways, as you were summarizing it, it sounds like a pretty classic, basic children's story, but it's so not. Like, it has so many developments and things to say, which I'm really excited to get into. But we both have obviously admitted that we love this movie, but what is your favorite aspect or why do you like this movie so much? I mean, like you said, there's it's based on a commonly adapted story with that said there's this creepy aspect to it where there's so many juxtapositions in the visual language that is used and also there's so many insect species in the (laughs) show (laughs) (laughs) yeah what about you why do you like this um I think for me well first I read the book as a kid or it was a movie I think not to be like that (laughs) I read the book first type of person (laughs) but I did and I did love it and it was super scary um I remember reading it like in our after school program or something and just being completely glued to it and I could not put it down but I think it just as a story in both the book and the movie like it really does speak to children's fears and realities more than a lot of other 
children's stories do. Like, I feel like it really was written for kids and with a kid's perspective in mind rather than an adult's understanding of what kids' imaginations are like. And it's really hard to explain why. I think the only way to really support that is just like how you felt as a kid while watching it. And for me, I felt like really seen. (laughs) And did you, because you read the book, so do you have any strong opinions about one or the other? Or like, what does the movie add or maybe take away from the book? Yeah, so I think it's actually, if I remember correctly, it's a pretty faithful adaptation. The one critical difference, I think, is that in the book, I think YB doesn't actually exist or like is not much of a feature at all. Whereas in the movie, he's like pretty integral. I mean, it is still Coraline's story for sure, um, but YB does have a role in saving her multiple times and just supporting her throughout the journey, providing clues and some context through his grandmother. I think there's there's things that are both lost and gained from that edition. So I think um, it teaches for one that, you know, no hero's journey is entirely solitary. You do need some support from friends. It also teaches that there's important context and knowledge to be had from friendships, namely the relationship between YB's grandmother and one of the lost children that we'll talk about later that was stolen by other mother. But I think what is kind of lost is maybe some sense of this being Coraline's story and the fact that we needed a boy, I don't know, in the story at all for any of this to work out. Uh, because in the in the book, like, he was not needed. He was not really a role. And Coraline was able to figure out and solve everything herself without being needed to be saved, which I think happens once or twice in the movie. Does the cat not fill that role too, though? Yeah, I think the cat does. Uh, yeah, that's why I think maybe YB wasn't necessary. But I feel like the cat's role was kind of more interesting and that he's sort of wily and cunning as cats often are. And Coraline kind of earns his friendship and guidance because the cat has no reason to give it. Whereas Wiley has other motivations. And were there as many insects in the book? (laughs) You know, good question. I don't remember, but I know for sure that um, obviously there's like the visual metaphor of spiders. Like usually the Mm -hmm. the mother is kind of seen as a spider in Mm -hmm. in the movie. And I think I do remember that because I do remember the hand scene was also there with the creepy crawly. And I was so scary. (laughs) Um, So I I think I, I would imagine so. But how do you feel about the insects? Because I know that you like them, but like many stories, these insects are characterized as evil or associated with Mm -hmm. evil in a lot of ways. So do you feel like slandered Mm -hmm. by that? or Do you still love it anyway? No, I I don't. And the reason why is that there's a lot more nuance to the way that they show the insects. It's true. There's like the way that the other mother is portrayed is as a spider and she's luring Coraline and she has all these traps and plans that are woven in kind of like a spider's web yeah. but there's so many other insects in there as well like the cockroaches in the bathroom oh those were actually silver oh silver silver fish is that what they're called silver fish that's okay. what they're called yeah silver fish and then there's a praying mantis that first starts off in Coraline's room and is used as the frame holder for the picture of her and her friends. And then that's, that mantis later is used in the scene where they're in the garden and the other dad, other fathers riding the mantis. And so mantises are a signal of like other being from another world. They're generally used 
as kind of like heralds to show that this is not the world that you think that it is, right? Like a different dimension kind of thing, partly tied to how strange that they look. And there's also dragonflies, which are also known as the devil's darning needles. And so that's also kind of, yeah, it's, it's interesting because they're on one hand, good luck. And on another hand can be seen as negative with negative connotations. And the dragonflies that Coraline have are the ones that are in her room flying the paper ones. And later they, when they're, when they're used by the other mother is used in a negative sense, but originally they're like watching over her. Okay, okay. So what I'm referring to here is a YouTube video by Karsten Runquist called Coraline Bug Theory, which further links to a blog article by Emmett Brady called Coraline and the Creepy Trio, a fresh look at entomology in film and animation. Oh my god, I love books. I could go on. There's a lot of insects. In okay, I even see the furniture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I like the furniture too. Yeah, it's, I guess the, the insects are more nuanced than I originally noticed, but they are still the queen of all of them. It's still this mother queen spider, the other mother, who is quite evil. So do you support evil, Deidre? No, but the other mother, <laughs> a spider is not an insect. So be true. I it's I an arachnid. Fine, fine, fine. It's an arachnid has eight fine. legs. <laughs> <laughs> mother queen bee then, kind of. I don't know. I'm trying to <laughs> think of other mothers in insect world. <laughs> okay, fine. We've established that Deidre does not support evil. <laughs> mm, thank you. <laughs> or eating children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just so we have the record straight. I do not approve <laughs> the message of eating children. <laughs> yeah, so... This movie is pretty great in a lot of different ways. And I think overall, what makes this story quite interesting, um, even though it is adapted from what we said, a story that has been adapted so many times, is the like creepy factor of all of this, right? I mean, were you scared watching this? Do you kind of remember your first reaction? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to reflect back on that. I think where it really hits home a lot is a couple of things. One is the desire for escapism and kind of being trapped between two worlds, the real world and the imaginative world that you discover in books and movies or just in your own mind. Like I remember experiencing that a lot as a kid because I loved reading and I almost had this like adjustment phase probably around the time of Coraline's age actually where I kind of had to like reconcile like the the fact that I was never really going to experience these magical worlds in my head with the day-to-day reality of life which was just like you know every day you go to school and then you come home and then you do your homework you know so I saw a lot of myself in Coraline's like reality of you know kind of a drab living reality not being able to get little things that she wanted like clothes that she wanted or even the food that she wanted and always just being imagining other worlds and realities And being granted that gift as being really like intoxicating and exciting um, when she enters the other world for the first time. So yeah, I would say there's that factor. But the second one also Mm -hmm. being like fear of abandonment of one's parents or a fear of like losing one's parents in some way is also one that I think a lot of kids deal with, even if it's not really based in any kind of reality. Like even just getting lost in a grocery store or like Disneyland or something is the most terrifying experience a child could have. Yeah, that's happened to me multiple times. Same. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my goodness. And yeah, I'm I'm just thinking about the scare factor because when I was younger, I took things a little more, I guess, like logically, whereas my sister, she was really into Harry Potter. And what you're talking about having to re- reconcile the real world, quote unquote, from from the other worlds, more magical worlds. She got really disappointed when she reached the age of 11, the age of 12, age of 13, and she never uh, got her Hogwarts letter. Classic <laughs> greatest disappointment. <laughs> right. I would relate to that as well. Yeah, which there are scary moments in those movies as well. But I just, it's funny because this movie is creepy in so many ways. And I don't just mean the insects because the insects are nice visual language but there's other ways that this is creepy and you talked about the abandonment issues like do you I I feel like that's a more subtle type of creepiness in the movie what other types did you notice well I think the other really creepy element comes in that precise moment when the button eyes are revealed and Coraline finally like in seeing them realizes okay there's this world is really messed up like I need to get out of here and her reaction in a gift box right her reaction echoes like exactly what the audience's feelings are too and I think it's that fear of being like made into a doll I mean exactly but made into like some sort of perfect vision of oneself without like having any control over that process and fitting into someone else's perfection And I think that hits like some really deep core fear of a lot of people of just like, I don't, I want to say the similar fear that's evoked robots, for example, or like dolls. A lot of people feel afraid of dolls. There's always a sense of lack of power and control that is associated with those puppets. I would say is another one, like puppets don't really have a control, like they're controlled by someone else. And so I think the the reason why we fear a lot of these images is that uniting fear of being controlled and also existing as a perfect vision for someone else. I never heard it that eloquently explained, but as you were (laughs) saying it, I was like, oh my God, this is like deep therapy shit, you know? (laughs) It's real, I don't know what you call it, Freudian or whatever, but it's like a real deep thing I think that a lot of people uh, maybe fear but of course it like may vary a lot based off of like different cultures like I know that dolls and puppets have like we've talked about this before different symbolism but I think that's that's still that fear is very common to a lot of people um, of being like forced into some version of oneself that's not real right whether it's the parent parents of vision or your own vision or society's vision, we tend to put on these masks or stuff ourselves into boxes that we think we should be fitting into. Right. And there is, right. yeah, I think there's there's a, the importance of the other mother being the one to do it as opposed to those other three things that I mentioned is a creepiness that also is, I feel like, quite common in horror tropes. Yeah, and I think it's really key with like the point in time that we're getting the story for Coraline like she's at that age where identity formation is like starting to become a thing and she wants to express herself like for example with her gloves that she wanted her mother to buy and like the things that she wears and even like her bedroom for example like she has very little control over how her bedroom looks and she loves her bedroom in the other world because it's all pretty and has like stars and all of these things so 
that critical juncture in which you have limitless imagination and limitless possibilities for the ways in which you can form your identity. And she's experiencing different types of suffocation. Like there's the suffocation she experiences from her real parents and that they're just not as invested in her as she would like them to be. And they're not able to support her identity formation by purchasing the things that she wants to wear. But then there's also the suffocation of other mother who literally wants to put her into those boxes you're mentioning, like this doll-like creature who does her bidding and is her perfect daughter in every way. So and yet her soul yeah. is not there, right? Right. The other mother eats the souls. Yep. <laughs> Lovely stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, I think that, that's really interesting. Yeah. So I think that's what makes this movie so great is that it really hits on these very real childhood fears that a lot of us experience you know, being driven into a box, struggle for identity formation, feeling ignored by our parents because they won't give us the things that we want <laughs> and recognizing that there are things that we want that will satisfy our own personal interests and that not all of us can access equally and just like unchecked, unbridled imagination as well. And that's why I feel like this movie really was, or the book too, was really written for children and recognizes and understands like childhood anxieties and fears and realities more so than a lot of other traditional childhood narratives go like which are more adventure stories or discovery stories and in that case because horror I think sometimes we think about slasher movies about I don't know I don't watch horror so scary movies (laughs) for adults that are violent and this isn't that and it's a children's movie and yet even with the imagery which is inherently very creepy especially once things kind of flip in the other world for Coraline. What you mentioned too is still very, it's more, is it existential? It's not quite existential. It's like develop. Yeah. I feel like it's more like identity. Yeah. Identity, personality, developmental fears Mm -hmm. and horror rather than psychological. Yeah. Or even like physiological, like blood and Mm -hmm. gore. Like there's none of that here. It's Mm -hmm. very much what's in our minds and how we grow up. Yeah. And I guess, why do you think we would even want to have scary children's movies because we already have this whole horror genre. And yet this movie did really well in the box office. And and there was like a yearning for, I would imagine, for this kind of young adult horror, creepy, suspenseful movie. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm trying to think of other scary children stuff and for some reason I'm thinking of courage the cowardly dog did you ever watch that yes. kid yeah like that was yes. also super creepy um, actually and- I wasn't allowed to watch it but I did watch <laughs> some episodes I I was too scared to watch it it was really scary I mm-hmm. I mean I would love to talk about it as an adult <laughs> later there's a I have a few examples actually like there's courage the cowardly dog there was did you ever watch gargoyles no Okay, Gargoyles was a Disney (laughs) show about gargoyles. (laughs) Okay, thank you. (laughs) Batman the Animated Series was pretty dark as well. Oh, okay, yeah. But these are really fun. Like, I have Mm. a lot of fond memories of these scary, yeah, these scary properties Mm. that we watched. I think, like, to get back to your question, like, I think a lot of kids' stuff is a lot of cautionary or, like, morality tales they're trying to teach you how to be rather than feeding off of your fears about what you can be or like what you will be, which is, I think, more what Coraline does. But I'm just thinking of, I don't know, your basic Disney fairy tales 
a lot of them are very formulaic. You know, there's like a specific type of journey. And then at the end of them, that is a specific type of reward. And it usually involves romance if it's like a girl's story. And then through that journey, like usually the hero learns from some mistake or learns how to be in some way. And it's all about morality, like how to be a good person or a good hero and how not to act and be like a villain. So very simplistic. But Coraline, it has a hero's journey that's very different. The villain is a mother rather than some kind of random evil witch or like an external force you mean. yeah prince and yeah it's, it's it's like more a product or creature of Coraline's own fears and imagination rather than external force as you're saying and then it also feeds off of our own childhood fears as, we, as we've mentioned rather than teaching us how we're supposed to be yeah so I don't know and I also think children are very much interested in or more so than we give them credit. Like I was actually watching the trailer because I was trying to see like how was this movie actually presented when kids were deciding whether or not they wanted to watch. And it was exactly like the the movie. It was like both absurd and fun and imaginative, but also creepy and, and scary at the same time. Like they show the scene with the silverfish in the bathroom, for example, and like the creepy right. mother's hand. So it has all of the scariest moments. And yet kids were not turned away from that. They were not afraid. So I think it kind of used a lot of that same narrative structure of this movie, which is like teasing you and inviting you in with that like imagination with the, the cool expansive world of the mother's other world. And then you get this creepiness sort of sewn in throughout. Again, I think it's just, it's made for children. Like it just knows children more than other films do. Yeah. And I was, because of the fact that it is like a creepier children's story, I was doing some research into why we have these stories. Cause I, I just think back, we can talk about examples later, but I, I just think back to the stories that I was exposed to. And the scary stories are kind of the ones that stick with us, Right, I feel. Like there's an excitement that comes with it, even though it is. I think sometimes when we think of fear, it's very one-dimensional, that it's it's a negative thing. But a lot of times fear in contexts that are a little more controlled can be very positive. And I was reading an article by Rachel Berg. It was from 20. 20- 18 and and basically discussing this topic it's from HuffPost and her her point was that kids need scary stories because it helps them rehearse emotion like emotionally rehearse similar situations or I mean these these are like fantastical and I think that's kind of why the two of us like cartoons is that there's this separation between ourselves and the story and yet there's still lessons that can be learned that can be applied for real life. And her next point was that the kids are able to explore fear in a safe context. And I know that to be true for for me. And at the end of the day, when you follow characters that you empathize with, you're developing empathy, you're understanding the resilience of the character. And so that's what I meant in that we're we're learning these about these stories and kids are learning about these stories through how Coraline navigates this really strange world, but also even her own daily life. Yeah, it's super interesting. I never thought about it in that way as being like fear and horrors being like developmentally useful. And that makes a lot of sense because kids are often very fearful in general, but also very brave, I feel mostly because they're probably ignorant of a lot of the things that should make us more fearful. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I can see how it would be good to watch a young hero like Coraline navigate her own fear and see how she responds with cleverness, especially. 
because kids don't have the brawn that a lot of traditional hero stories have, you know, where you're slaying dragons and stuff. That's not something like kids can probably do, but they can be clever. And that kind of teaches kids to be more resourceful with the skills that they do have and to kind of learn healthier habits when it comes to moderating fear as well. Yeah, which I think is a really great lesson to learn even for adults, which which is why I don't love a lot of horror movies that I've seen for adults, not all, but some where they rely on the violence and the gore and and this idea of like strength and to kind of like get out of situations. But but in this context with children's stories, because you don't have you can't really rely on those to make them suitable for children those tropes, then there's a more creative aspect that goes into it. And you're contextualizing the story around children who are in so many ways, kind of like, I I feel very true versions of themselves before society kind of like beats them down. And yet they're also vulnerable in a lot of ways as well. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's also important to talk about creativity and imagination in children because I think this movie has a lot to say about it and what's really interesting is that Coraline she's a very imaginative person and that's like the main struggle for her in this film is that she's navigating between this imagined world and this real world and the imagined version of herself that she wants to be and that is in conflict with when it comes to her parents but what's also interesting is that the villain of this movie is also a creature of uninhibited imagination. She can create this entire world that suits all of her needs. She creates all these amazing spectacles for Coraline to enjoy. And her one goal is to imagine a version of Coraline as a doll, as her perfect daughter and eventually her perfect meal. So it's kind of interesting how the film sort of chastises Coraline a little bit, like don't imagine too much. There's some limitations to reality and you'll have to accept that in your real life. But it also is telling us that too much imagination is evil through this this mother figure. So it's kind of leaves me wondering like what the film sort of message is. I think it's saying something along the lines, like if it's good to embrace imagination, but like within specific limits, because if you develop and grow up with this uninhibited imagination, like the mother, you'll become this creature of desire who wants to like control their environment to an extent that it just damages everyone in it and forces you to absorb literal children, I guess, to feed off of your imagination. I don't know. Do you do you have a sense of like what the movie's message might be when it comes to imagination? I never thought about it in that way. And I'm thinking now. So so you're you're what you're saying is basically too much imagination could lead Coraline to develop into the other mother or similar as a means of being too controlling yeah stifles the imagination is that what you're saying I don't know if it's necessarily saying that Coraline could become that but so much as saying like that's the reality of an adult that has almost childlike imagination and it kind of makes sense in a way because the other mother is childlike in a lot of ways like she's very greedy she's very demanding like she wants what she wants and she loves games as we're told as well so it's kind of right so yeah yeah, I, I it just makes me think of environmental issues and whether humans are trying to be too controlling of the natural world in which we're linked to our imagination and things that we can't really control. But yeah, I could go on 
Let's not. <laughs> yeah. And I was just thinking too, a lot of imagination in this world, and I think in a lot of stories, is gendered in a very feminine way. For example, this other mother, she has her own world, right? That is just pure reflection of her own interests and desires. But it's also like a display of feminine creationary power in a way. So like if you notice the way that Coraline enters this world, it's this almost womb-like passage. And then there's yes. this like sense of rebirth as well. Like if she's to put on these button eyes, um, like she'll be reborn as like a new Coraline kind of. So there's a lot of imagery and messages about gestation kind of. But it's also interesting it. because there is another father, but he's very clearly like a puppet. There's no equality there. Um, he's just a tool to entrance Coraline into this world. So in a sense, this like this mother holds all the strings and she's kind of like almost like an asexual reproductive power in a way. So I think there's there's a little bit of that fear of motherhood's powers and like fear of rebirth and control through like, I guess, like a mother's asexual reproduction in here. And this is where it gets obviously really deep, but I feel like there is something to it in this movie i i think about that a lot okay not not the asexual mother I, I, that's that's a new idea to me but but <laughs> the idea the trope of having a uh maybe overly powerful female figure that gets like drunk on this power and is super controlling yeah which, right yeah i feel like the persistence of that kind of story is really interesting as a reflection of the types of things society is afraid of and and this is an american movie but but definitely i ha we have these stories in indonesia as well i also just quickly to relate to that it's also not just about motherhood's power but the promotion of the nuclear family also because like in the real world it's it's a pretty standard mother father daughter nuclear family but in the imagined world there's no balance in that way it's purely all the power resides in the mother and so that's another way of portraying that world or that version of a family as evil and the nuclear traditional family as good. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. I see. So she's just a single woman, right? Yeah, the other basically. Just a single woman single with maybe her, mother her cats with and her. Power. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And her like bug friends. Right. Kind of like cats. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like a critique or a chastisement of, I guess, powerful mother figures in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Or What's maybe that not about? just mothers, but but yeah, yeah. Strong, even caregivers or, you know, a twisted version of caregivers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, and, and it just it also just makes me think of the kinds of stories that persist not just in, oh, so we've talked a lot about horror movies children's movies but what about I guess like children's stories it you know historically so let's go further back oh yeah I think obviously the one that comes to mind is Hansel and Gretel for me or any other story that features cannibalism so we're talking <laughs> about like the Grimm's fairy tales I think and I was actually like reading about it I think it's something like every single grim fairy tale except for maybe three like cinderella snow white no snow white actually also was cannibalism basically every single it like, was yeah um so all of, a lot of the original fairy tales had cannibalism in it and a lot of them had like sexual assault and rape in them too right 
So obviously they've become Disney-fied now, but Hansel and Gretel was one of them. And I think it's the most famous example. Like, I guess just to summarize, these parents send their children into the woods basically to abandon them. Um, and the, the kids drop breadcrumbs in some versions. In other versions, I think it's pebbles so that they can keep track of where they are and find their way home. But they eventually become ensnared by this witch's house that is made of, I think, sugar and candies and breads. Yeah, obviously it's very different versions, but this is the gist. And they spend, they have a good time there. They spend a lot of time eating and then it's all turns out to be a ploy by this witch to eat them essentially. But they eventually trick her and kick her into the oven so that they can escape. And then find their way home with their crumbs. But yeah, it's it's a very classic stories about a witch or some kind of old crone, usually always a woman, right. notably, who wants to eat children in order to sustain themselves. And that's a German, the Grim Fairy. I believe so. Yeah. Hansel, Grimm or German. Yeah, Hansel yeah. and Gretel. Yeah. Yeah. And and I do know that a lot of stories that demonize lone women's shaman women's magic yep. women's like witches were a way to demonize female focused like religions or or practices such as wiccans right i don't know what the correct term is but oh and even horoscopes when you think of horoscopes it's easy to think about those horoscopes at the back of the newspaper or wherever you can like look up your day to day but there's a whole other thought and culture and history behind those that expands greater that I can't really talk about but I know people who are who are more mm-hmm. involved in that but it's it's like almost paganism that's also you know female-centric kinds of things yeah get absolutely discredited right it's a way also even back in those days like even if like, these were communities that didn't even have any concept of like shamanism or other things like that it was still a way for them to punish the idea of a woman living alone basically or outside of the traditional structure of society because back then it was very restrictive and still is in a lot of ways today like you live in your hut or whatever with your nuclear family you don't live on your own in the woods because if you do that means you're a witch or at the very least some kind of social degenerate a great book for people to read if they're interested in these kinds of concepts is Women Who Run With the Wolves, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype, which is by Clarissa Pinkola. Have you read that? No, I haven't, but I love the title. (laughs) Yeah, you should. It's great. It has all these archetypes of exactly what we're talking about and the power that we not not only we actually honestly like anyone can draw from because it's a part of the storytelling which just hasn't been elevated in the same way that we talk about more masculine based stories. Right. And I want to get back to also like the social purpose of these concepts for Hansel and Gretel. I was reading a really good article called Cannibalism and Fairy Tales by Matt D.B. Harper. And basically he talks about how cannibalism in fairy tales back then was a way for children to begin to process concepts like poverty, starvation and famine, and even like death and aging, which were all obviously very primary concerns back in the day that like these fairy tales were prominently circulated. So I think it's interesting and makes a lot of sense that cannibalism has disappeared largely in a lot of modern day fairy tales, with the exception of Coraline, which is 
very rare, I think, or it's, it's pretty rare to have a modern day fairy tale that uses cannibalism as a tool. And so I kind of wonder why, I guess, because obviously it is still true. Poverty and famine obviously do exist today. And these are things that children do need to process, but not in the same function or frequency as it used to be. So I think maybe it does come back to what we were arguing or talking about earlier about the consumption of kids being something to do with maybe like aging or the preservation of power or the ability to grow one's imagination or turn one's imagination into power. I Okay, as I was looking at Coraline and we love this story and turns out it kind of coincided with an interesting trend, which happened mostly in TV movie, TV, sorry, TV shows. So Coraline came out 2009, I believe. And do you remember, we talked about Courage the Cowardly Dog and I mentioned a few other shows, Gargoyles, Batman, the animated series. Mm -hmm. And those were shows that were made in the 90s or late 2000s and or early 2000s. And by the early 2000s and mid 2000s, there was a movement of parents who were saying that shows were too violent and too scary for their children. And it pushed enough so that it pushed executives to kind of self-censor themselves and cancel a lot of really great shows. Um, And Coraline came up at the end of this which I thought was really interesting and maybe adds to this like hunger for a scary quote unquote children's story. That's kind of for everyone, you know? Yeah. I feel like it's like, it feels like one of those movies that like, it just feels amazing that it exists and it just fulfills a specific need that like a specific audience had at the time. And I I kind of compare it to Lord of the Rings movies which is like, even to this day, people look back and they're like, it's amazing that so many things perfectly aligned for this brilliant series to exist so perfectly. And yeah, I just feel like Coraline is kind of like the equivalent of that. And it was maybe coming at a time when people were expecting these types of things to become out of favor, or maybe I guess parents, I don't know, it seems ridiculous <laughs> that they were saying that about these films, but it's like yeah, a, it- an amazing twist of fate that it happened that way. Yeah, and these kinds of things has hap- have happened a lot in American history because this was like a push by the American audiences. And we talked, I think we talked a little bit before about the Hayes Code. Mm-hmm. Um, nine, it was like 1930s to 1960s where there was like a whole list of rules that, that essentially censored or restricted the types of materials that could mm-hmm. be exposed to the American audiences <laughs> and not just our children. <laughs> yeah, but after that executives and you know executives still hold a lot of power in directing the kind of movies and at the time of Coraline I guess what I was saying was that for at least in television there was really this push to to make things more palatable for a wider audience mm-hmm. and they didn't I guess they didn't want to lose that part of the audience of yeah I wonder what's not allowing movies right I wonder <laughs> you know? what the response to Coraline was was <laughs> Was it just horror that the kids were watching this or was it like, this is actually pretty good. I'd watch it too. (laughs) Well, I think, well, first of all, Coraline almost doubled the profits that it made. It it was, it was a costly movie, but at the same time, it made a lot of money for Laika. It was one of the most critically acclaimed movies for Laika. And so it was a huge hit. But I, I also think that the creepiness of Coraline, like I said, it's not violence. It's doesn't rely on violence. There's a lot more layers to it. There's a creativity around the storytelling to make it 
I think children just wouldn't get a lot of, they wouldn't understand some of the psychological, Mm -hmm. you know, things. Kind of like how late I was to the game to what you were just saying. (laughs) (laughs) The other mother in relation to Coraline. So yeah, I, at the end of the day, it makes money and these, that's how these projects can can win favor. yeah yeah <laughs> you know? and I think the horror mo- movie genre in general has changed more recently too in that it's more explicitly embracing the idea of saying something or having some kind of argument than it used to be like it used to be like basic slasher film whatever violence gore jump cuts that scare you but now we have things like get out have you seen that or us I loved Get Out. Oh, yeah. I I watched Us. Us was not bad, too. But Get Out was amazing. Yeah. Right. So, like, movies like that in which there's a clear, like, political message. And it doesn't have to be political necessarily. But some kind of message is or point to the movie. Because I think horror as a genre is more uniquely positioned to have an argument or say something than other films are. Because it embraces concepts of evil and like what makes things evil or like fear why are we so scared of certain things what makes a real hero versus a villain and a lot of these are similar to children's movies as well in that they're both kind of cautionary tales horror movies and children's movies are trying to caution you against something or teach you something so that's why having a horror children's movie you're double punching it and it's extremely powerful in that regard yeah I mean young adult movies do so well when they hit well, they hit really hard because it's kind of like the broadest audience that you could have, right? PG-13 area. Right. Yeah. And I do like this idea of horror being a way to discuss certain topics that other genres maybe don't have. And that's why it's, yeah, I mean, I think, again, that relates to this female antagonist story. Because I, for this, for this episode, I looked back at stories that I know and Actually, there's a huge range of of verbal, oral, sorry, oral storytelling. So a lot of things that include monkeys and different animals and a lot of times lone widows, which are not evil. <laughs> uh, one of them is called Timon Mas, which is about a girl who grew out of, it literally means golden cucumber. And she grew out of oh, a cucumber plant and she's chased around by this hideous giant. And yeah, through her, through certain gifts that her mom gave her she was able to defeat the giant come home and live with her mother although in some tellings it's a prince found her in a tree or something i don't know but (laughs) (laughs) i like the version where she ends up with the mother (laughs) Uh, and as i was looking i also came across this really great story about niblorong i assume you haven't heard about that one (laughs) nope Uh, this yeah this is a javanese sundanese deity Oh, so for context, there's five islands in Indonesia. Java is the largest one where Jakarta is. And it there's an equator, uh, not an equator. It's There's a fault line that runs around the bottom of the island. Because of that, it makes the seas very treacherous. And we do get a lot of earthquakes and tsunamis. And this Niblorong is a half-human, half-snake female deity of the ocean. And she... She starts as like a regular human. Eventually, certain things happen where she proves her fighting ability and leadership and intelligence, and she becomes the supreme commander of the Southern Coast Royal Palace or Royal Guard, which is really cool. But the persistent story that we hear about and that 
has become more popular in horror movies is her tendency to lure men and have sex with them and make a deal with them Ugh. so that they have to give their soul. Demonist. Starting to sound familiar. Wench. Other than the sex part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there are a lot of movies, old movies based on on this character. And yeah, it's super yeah, cool. Always beautiful women are always going to steal your men and then take their souls. <laughs> beautiful women are so evil. They're so them. evil. You know that trope with the the like a woman, this is a lot of Asian tropes where it's a woman wearing white with long, dark hair Yeah, that come for you. Sometimes beautiful, usually beautiful. That's the patriarchy. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of like society's acknowledgement that they kind of fucked over a lot of strong women, <laughs> I feel. <laughs> but it's also kind of why I love these movies. So uh, the, sorry, those stories. Moving on from that, I guess I'm just before we end, I want to know if you have any hot takes, facts. We need a more succinct name for this, I feel. I yeah, help okay. us. Someone if you help have us. ideas. <laughs> we will be grateful. Okay. Please continue. Okay, so the one that I was super interested in for this film was Mr. Bobinski. We haven't really talked much about him or the two yes. ladies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're like the neighbors in Coraline's house. Uh, but Mr. Bobinski, I think he's some kind of gymnast or something. But Like a circus is... performer. Okay, okay. So that makes sense. But yeah, basically there's this shot in which you can see he has a medal. And I discovered this online. It's, it's a pretty famous Easter egg, but I did not find it. And I thought it was really cool. But it's actually a medal that signifies, I think, the first responders or cleanup crew that went into Chernobyl after the nuclear fault. Oh. Yeah. So the director apparently said that the reason his skin is blue is because he spends a lot of time outdoors in the cold and it just turned his skin blue. But my popular theory and a lot of popular theory online also is that his skin is blue because of the radiation from oh the fallout. Yeah. From the nuclear plant, which I think is interesting. Yeah. I guess my hot take is I feel like more trivial now that you talked about Chernobyl. I like have such <laughs> a fear about what's going on nuclear wise in Ukraine mm-hmm. just because of this, yeah. the situation. But I don't know. It feels so trivial. <laughs> no, no. Share your, is it bug related? No, okay. I, no, it's not. It's one of my other interests, which is needlework. Oh, so, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. And basically what I found out is that, so sweaters are really interesting in this show. Wow. Uh, yeah. They had to hire a woman called Althea Chrome mm-hmm. from Indiana who specialized in making tiny knitted clothes oh, and that's, that's so like cool. yeah it's like so she she literally knits these these like tiny little needles that she's like <laughs> knitting with and she made all the sweaters by hand and they had to fit on the puppets she made those orange gle- green gloves that Coraline loves so much oh, those so tiny cool. little things it's like smaller than your fingernail and she had she did like 80 stitches per inch which is does she use a microscope like how how did she do that no, she has photos. So you can go to, I think it's AltheaChrome.com. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And her, she sells tiny knitted items from like several hundred dollars to thousands of dollars range in price. And pretty freaking amazing. 
that she had and she had to design these clothes like they're so cool I can't even imagine that is so cool though that like you must be she must have been so talented to be able to make that like and that just comes to like another point which we haven't really discussed that much but just like how amazing the animation is for this movie like how rare like it's stop motion obviously requires so much investment and time and resources to make and so much skill to be able to craft so yeah I just wanted to like I think it took four years for this movie to be made and I think each it took a full week or something to produce just 90 seconds of content so yeah I guess I just wanted to note that like our appreciation for the beauty of this work how hard it is how rare it is and how um, gifted we are to be able to watch it yeah, and it's the long, Coraline was 100 minutes long, I think. So it's the longest stop motion film at the time when it was released. They didn't have any that went on that long because of what you said. It just takes such a long, laborious thing to animate. But I, I also think that's why it's really a great art form. And it's a really fun art form because you could literally do it yourself. This kind of animation, you use clay and just kind of move things around. And yet this is, you know, the higher version of that. And there is actually a new claymation movie coming out, I think by Leica as well. And oh, yeah, I was wondering what they were going to be doing next. Yeah. So, okay. So you mentioned Get Out. So Jordan Peele is heading this. Jordan with, Peele. Yeah. Jordan Peele with. Uh, Keegan-Michael Key. Keegan-Michael Key. Yeah. Nice. And it's called, oh, it's called Wendell and Wild. And there was like a teaser trailer that came out. If I knew, if anyone wants to check that out mm-hmm. and I'm excited. There's, this is <laughs> the most diverse, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, background production people, it seems like so far. Creative mm-hmm. team is, is a better word for it, which is just exciting because it's new and yeah you know not to take away from the great movies we've had already yeah Um, I guess if you if anyone who made Coraline or who works at like or who does stop motion animation ever listens to this know that we appreciate you (laughs) we appreciate you it takes so freaking long well that's it everyone we would love to hear from you as always Again, doesn't have to be full paragraphs. Give us a single line question. Ask us things. Tell us about about what kind of Leica movies you like. Yeah, kind of or stop motion. Stop motion. Stuff. Yeah, yes. stop motion is better. Leica is not the only one. Yeah, that makes right. those. Do you like um, Wallace and Gromit? Do you <laughs> <laughs> have a favorite scary bedtime story? <laughs> yeah, things like that throwing out ideas here yeah thanks everyone (laughs) this was a really fun conversation i look forward to more children's movies thanks for joining us on cartoon revolution episodes drop the first week of every month on spotify apple podcasts and most other major podcast platforms follow us on instagram at cartoonrevolution.pod that's cartoonrevolution.pod tell us what you're watching and share your hot takes with us Music is from the musical ghost. See you next time. See you soon. Mwah.